Hey, I'm really glad you're with us today. And as a matter of fact, if you're a guest with us today, can I say it's really a pleasure to have you with us. If you'll look inside the program that you got as you came in today, uh, we're, we, we're hoping that you'd show up today. And uh, as a matter of fact, if you look on the inside flap of that guests, you'll see that there's a place that says connect. And we truly want to connect with you as, as our time together in this room comes to an end. Uh, when we're done at the end of our worship service, if our guests would step forward, uh, there'll be a number of us here on staff that we'd like to um, say hello to you and put some names to faces. Bring that, and we'll send you then off to the cafe for something to eat and drink. Uh, courtesy of the church, we'd be glad if you'd do that. Those of you who worship with us each and every weekend, you know the routine that there are some attendance pads in the pew there, and we need you to fill those out, please, so that we could have a record of your visit with us, and we would very much appreciate that. For all of us then, let's take our, our scriptures today, our Bibles, and you may have one with you. You may have one on your smartphone or your tablet. Maybe you could grab one in the pew rack in front of you, and let's spend some time looking at scripture today. We're going to be looking at the book of James, which is way in the back of the book, like this far back, okay? So you can see that it's really way back there. If you're unfamiliar with scripture, you'll find there's one in the pew rack in front of you. And uh, the page numbers are on the screen behind me. Take that Bible home as our gift to you if you'd like to have it, okay? While you're looking for James chapter 1 this morning, um, I had some responsibilities this week that reminded me as I was working my way through them of the early days of my pastoral ministry. Uh, when, uh, well, to be honest, it was the summer of 1985 and... Um, <laughs> Uh, to this day, I can only say it was a, a move of God that this uh, church of about 40 people in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, where we, Leslie and I had gone to college, they asked me to uh, fill the pulpit and they said they wanted me to preach. Truth be told, I think in all honesty, uh, they needed a preacher, they needed somebody who could play the piano or a keyboard of some sort and somebody who could sing. And I think they looked at Leslie and me and they said, well, at least we've got two of the three covered. Les can sing, Wake can play the piano. And what he says from the pulpit, we'll just go with it. And so uh, I said yes, and we were young. I'd, I didn't have a clue what I was doing, seriously. Let me, let me tell you that nine months later, through a series of providential moves, they literally then said, well, instead of just doing this temporarily, will you actually become our permanent full-time pastor? And my profile at that point, had, it didn't add up. I had no seminary, under, no seminary work whatsoever. I had a degree in business. I mean, it was a business major at Oral Roberts University along with a music minor. And I think we had to take nine or 12 hours of Bible in an undergraduate degree at ORU, but I need to tell you, that, that barely starts. And I had no theology whatsoever, the theological stuff from, from undergraduate work, and none, no discussion whatsoever about what was involved in being a pastor. And so <laughs> I was really young, and yet they asked me to take on that role. And I remember sitting there as this young guy in my office, which I guess had become my office. Well, there we are right there. Wasn't she lovely? Isn't she lovely? I should sing that song. Isn't she lovely? You guys, you would have wanted to marry her too. I know you would have. Yeah, that's a deal. There we were. That's 1985. Um, and the whole thing was like, you're asking me to be the pastor. And I don't know what, I, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And one day, this... Uh, one of the elders of the church. Remember, this is Oklahoma, and he has a great Oklahoma name. 
His name, uh, he's since passed away, his name was Billy Bob Colpitts. Isn't that a great name, Billy Bob Colpitts? He came by the office and he said, what you doing this afternoon, Wayne? I said, oh, I'm, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, what do you do when you're a pastor? Do you, and I didn't know. And so he, he said, did you know Mrs. So-and-so? And I can't remember her name. We'll call her Mrs. McGillicuddy. He said, did you know that Mrs. McGillicuddy's in the hospital down at Tulsa Regional Medical Center? She's been there for a number of days. No, I didn't know that. How's she doing? Well, <laughs> he said, well, I was thinking I might go visit her and have a chat with her and wanted to know if you'd like to come along. So off I went with him. Yeah, sure, Billy Bob, I'll come along. And I remember driving across town, it's seven or eight miles from where the church was down to where the host, that particular hospital is and pulling in the parking lot. I remember we pulled in and turned around to the right and pulled up right against some trees and it was summertime and get a little bit of shade, and we walked in the lobby, and he goes, she's in room 543. He already knew that. And so we went straight to the elevator, and I remember the elevator doors opening, and me thinking I was really smart that 543 means he's on the fifth floor, and I reach out, and I push button number five, and suddenly I caught what was going on here. I was, oh man, I was suddenly learning something that Maybe other guys who'd gone to seminary knew, but I hadn't gone to seminary. I had a business degree. What does a business degree teach you about pastoring? And I remember standing in that elevator as the doors closed and the light going on. What do you think the light was that went on? I want to tell you about that today as we look at the book of James. I'll tell you what, really what I figured out right in that split moment in a moment. But what we're doing today is we're, we're carrying on with our study the book of James. James, this book way in the back of the Bible, I want you to turn to it today again, written by a member of Jesus' family. Seriously, Jesus' half-biological brother, his half-brother. And uh, he tells us in many ways throughout the whole five chapters of the book of James, the best way to live our lives. And so we thought we'd use James this, this year as bookends for how we should live our lives in 2015. Last week, we started by looking at how he tells us to just straight up persevere. Work on stuff and persevere through struggle and see how things turn out if, and God will be with you. And today, I want to carry on that examination of perseverance and how perseverance can teach us, how perseverance can lead us to wisdom. And that's frankly what I needed back in Tulsa because I, well, I still do. I need the wisdom of God and the responsibilities I have now, the responsibilities I had then, you need wisdom in the places where you live and work this week, don't you? What would James, what would scripture tell us about that? James chapter one, verse one. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. This is what we looked at last week, remember? Let perseverance finish its work so that, you may mature, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to persevere so I'll become mature. And I'm not going to lack anything. Oh, and by the way, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. It will be given to you. When you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. And that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So, 
If we're going to use this book to find out how we should live in 2015 and some bookends around our lives, this particular passage is going to help us with this understanding and this goal for today. What about wisdom for 2015? Because you and I, we each have to make some significant decisions, more than likely throughout this coming year, that are going to impact our own lives, the lives of our families, and yes, even other people. And if you're like me, you wonder about some of the decisions that are before you. I mean, some decisions are big, some are smaller. What time are you going to go to bed tonight? You need some wisdom about that, right? But it's a fairly small decision that doesn't impact all of life for the rest of life. I mean, if you go to bed early tonight, you know you're going to be a little more refreshed in the morning, you would assume. If you stay up watching the late, 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 late show and you get two hours of sleep and you, you have to be at work only after two hours of sleep, it's, an, it's a decision that's going to impact you for a day or two, but it's probably not going to have long-lasting implications, but there are others that are far more impacting. Decisions that actually can change the course of our life for years, if not forever. You wonder about your family, for example, in a career move. Is this the time to make that career move that's been offered to you? If you do, you know it's going to be this kind of work for the next three years and maybe for the next 20 years. Should you buy that house that you were driving by the other day and you saw the realtor sign in the yard and you go, I've always admired that house. But if I buy that house, it has financial implications and it means a lot of work. We have to move. Do I want to move? And you face, some of you will face that decision in 2015, right? Some of us will face decisions about our cars this year. We're going to keep driving the car we're driving right now. I, <laughs> I drive a 95 Nissan Altima that... Um, well, it's in lovely shape, so to speak, given that it's coming up on 20 years old. It's, but you know what's really good about my 95 Nissan Altima? It's got a little bit of rust in, back, in a couple of the quarter panels in the back, but it takes about four or $500 a year in maintenance to keep that thing going and repairs now and then, but apart from that, it's paid for. And so when I think about a new car, I go, hmm, is this the right time to buy a new car since that one's already paid for? And the wheels go round and it's clean on the inside and... You know, we've taken care of it over the years. So is this, I mean, what do you do about that? Some of us are going to face that decision somewhere along the line this year. And knowing that, okay, buying a car doesn't change my life, but it does change my finances a little bit, right? Some of you are going, I wish my decision was that simple. And you're saying, should I marry that man who's now asked me to marry him six times? If he's asked you six times, you've not said yes yet, I think you should probably say no, but that's a different matter, all right? <laughs> if you didn't say yes on the first go round, fair enough. The sixth time, mm, I don't know, but nonetheless. My point is, we face all these decisions that are in front of us, and we've got all these, I mean, there's lots of input coming our way when it comes to figure out how to do these things, right? I mean, you can go out on the internet and you can get anybody and everybody's advice. We live in a very fast-paced world where you could find whatever you want to find in terms of advice, but what does, what does biblical and godly wisdom look like? Well, James gives us some clues and some direction. Did you notice when we read this, by the way, that when he acknowledges the need for growth in wisdom, he ties it to, you're not going to like this, perseverance? <laughs> Same thing as last week, right? He says, let perseverance finish its work. This is his four. 
so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously. And he ties perseverance and wisdom together. There's an indication then that we kind of have to persevere into wisdom. We have to grow into wisdom. It's almost like we're babies who have to grow up and go through, if you will, you could even say an adolescent-styled wisdom, and then move on to mature, faith-filled, spirit-led wisdom. Here's an observation, friends. A mature, faith-filled, spirit-led Christian, someone who walks with Christ, is a person who has been filled with God-imparted wisdom, and that person cannot remain a, an adolescent wisdom person for years upon years. If you've got adolescence in your lives, in your, you know, in your life, and you have maybe one in the house, or you've got a grandkid or a nephew, or you hang out with teenagers, you have an expectation that they're going to move through adolescence to adulthood. Okay, if we've got this movement through our lives of wisdom and God working within us, why on earth would we accept an idea that there are some Christians who never grow up in terms of wisdom? That's one of the things that we focus on around here as a congregation. We say, we want to develop people. Our mission is this, is to develop fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ by growing and serving together. And the word develop is really important to us. It's a process. We want to see people grow from point A to point B. There's a sense of forward movement and upward movement. Because just as it's very unhealthy to remain an adolescent physically all of your life, We'd say, if, if you're still an adolescent physically at th- age 38, we're going to take you to the doctor, right, and say something's not right. Well, then, we as Christians also cannot say, well, I've got, I've got, I've got the wisdom of a 14-year-old Christian. It's not appropriate. It was one reason why when we work with the teenagers in the life of our congregation, we're very intentional about what's, what... What experiences and what settings are we going to place them in where they can grow? Where they can grow in their understanding of God's work in their lives and their understanding of God's view of the world. We sent 125 people to Cincinnati last summer with that very idea in mind. This photo is one of my favorite photos of the life of our church in recent years. All those people from our congregation, the majority of them teenagers, we obviously sent some adults along, You would think that'd be wise, wouldn't you? But we go with this very clear understanding that when we send our teens on that mission or others like it, the focus is not to go have a good time. They don't go to camp. Did you know that? They don't go to camp where they're playing games all day. They're off on a mission trip where they're swinging hammers and pushing paintbrushes back and forth and pulling on rakes and hoes, and they are learning in a pretty intense environment what it means to work together. You put a bunch of teens together like that and they have to work together, or you put a bunch of adults together like that and they have to work together. It's a pressure-packed situation. And what's wonderful about that is it causes those teenagers to say, I got to grow up. I got to be different. If I'm going to see the world as the world really is, I've got to grow up. And what's fascinating is not only they grow up in wisdom, but they also grow up in their eyes of how God works in the world because we put them in settings that are pretty, um, at times, 
Well, the people they're working with are struggling in life. Should we put it that way? And so, um, I have a question for you. I trust that the spiritual wisdom that we are pushing those kids toward and the God view eyes that we're asking them to develop, I, have to, I trust that spiritual wisdom has not outstripped yours, has it? We wouldn't want them to stay the same. How come, dare, how come we dare stay the same in terms of our wisdom either? We're going to send another bunch off to Cincinnati this year, as well as this summer we're going to send the seniors and juniors in high school. We're going to send them to Cuba. So with all of that in mind then, how is it that we could become wiser? James gives us the answers. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, do what? You should ask God who gives generously to all. In other words, if you need to grow in wisdom, this, what's the starting point? Ask God. How do you ask God? You pray. You pray in faith and you pray believing that God can and will give wisdom to you generously. Even if you're in the midst of a setting where you go, I don't like the way life is going right now. Because it's in the middle of coming to God Scripture says that God gives generously. If you need wisdom, God gives it generously. And we end up with a profile then that is based on verse 4. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be what? Mature and complete, not lacking anything. You lack wisdom, pray about it, and you won't lack it anymore. We grow into that profile of being mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, I must admit... It's rarely a case that this light switch goes on and you go from being unwise to wise. I get that. It's movement. It's perseverance. And let me give you a case in point. Excuse me. The congregation that Leslie and I served in Tulsa, uh, when we got there, there were about 40 people. And we served that congregation, at, at me as the pastor, if you will, for the next eight and a half years. And in those eight and a half years, we grew in numbers. We grew from about 40 to pushing up against 200 on a, on a, in a service once, once a Sunday. And at the end of eight and a half years is when this congregation asked if Les and I would move here. And so we left literally December 31st, 1993 and arrived here. We spent the night in Rolla, Missouri. We spent the night and uh, New Year's Eve and then we arrived here January 1, 1994. And we began to hear distressing things coming out of that congregation back in Oklahoma. That it wasn't going so well, that people weren't adapting to the changes, and that people were leaving, and pretty soon, to be honest, within 18 months, the 200 people that were in that congregation had scattered, and they were back to the original 40. So it was like this, a big blip on the screen, my ministry there. I need to tell you, I'm somewhat embarrassed by that. I'm chagrined at what I failed to do in the life of that congregation. I was young. I was trying to figure it out. But here's what I learned. You can't, in, from a pastoral point of view, you can't grow the top of a congregation unless you change the systems below it. And so all, I, all I'd been able to do, if you will, was Les and I had brought people into the life of that church based on the strength of our relationships within the community. And we had more often attracted people to who we were and to Christ in us, if you will, than to Christ in the congregation. And that was our mistake. That was my mistake. Seriously. Because, truth be told, 
the, system, the systemic needs and situations of a church of 40 are significantly different than the systemic needs of a church of 200. And I hadn't been, had any ability or any wisdom to know that in order to be really a church of 200 where it would be sustained at 200, we had to change the systems. It, wasn't, it didn't occur to me. I hadn't figured that out. So as we began to grow here at First Christian, we have intentionally, year after year, looked at our systems and say, it's more than just bringing people in the door. What are we teaching them and how are we as a congregation handling the systems of our church? That wasn't a sudden learning. That took time to learn that. It took time, if you will, to grow in wisdom. But in the midst of even my embarrassment of that church, which frankly no longer exists today, sadly, that 40 people in the 20 years from when we left to today, it closed up shop at the end of 2013. They never did recover. They never did get out of that rut. James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask of God who gives generously. And I don't know that I asked. I don't know that I was wise enough to even acknowledge that I wasn't wise enough. So, what do we do? We've got decisions in front of us and we say, God, help me to understand. Help me to get at the base of the decisions to figure out exactly what you're calling me to do and how you want me to work and how you want me to work in the midst of the setting. And then after we pray, what else do we do? Well, we look to Scripture. Part of gathering wisdom requires a willingness on our part, apparently according to James, to be people who are diligent, who the language he uses is that we have to persevere. And that one way in which we persevere in, in growing our wisdom is to be diligent in examining what Scripture would say about any variety of topics. And you, you, to grow in wisdom, you need to spend some time in Scripture and you need to look at this personality and that personality and this situation and this situation. And the only way you get to do that is by being diligent and by studying and opening up the book on a fairly regular basis and saying, how can I grow? How can I learn? For example, I've got, um, I've got some homework for you today, for the coming week, okay? I want you to read through all the book of James again. Be We're going to stay in this book for a number of weeks, so I want you to read through all the book of James. But then, in a way to kind of examine a setting and some, one of the personalities of Scripture, I want you to look at Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 20. Can you write that down? Genesis 12 and chapter 20 this week. And just take a look at the life of a man known as Abraham or Abram at various points in his life and his wife, Sarai or Sarah. Two, they both had multiple names in Scripture. And there are two settings in Scripture, Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, where Abram actually lies about his relationship with his wife. And he passes her off twice as his sister. Was that wise? Or was, it, was he being a coward? Was lying a good thing? Take a look at those. And my point being, I could give you my, my understanding of the situation, but I want you to, as, as kind of an exercise in this idea of studying and looking at Scripture to know how to respond to particular situations. If you can look at that this week and come up with an answer. Was this the right thing to do? Was this the wrong thing to do? Do you want to have a chat about it? Give me a call on the phone this week and we can visit together. And I can give you my opinion if, on this, if you will. But my point is not so much about the Abram and Sarai situation, but the experience that you're going to have at looking at that 
and seeing how scripture can be used to impact your life. Now, beyond scripture, of course, praying and then looking at scripture, it's fair to say that if you want to grow in wisdom, it's also appropriate to look at secular sources. Though be careful in this that you don't settle for just pop culture wisdom. But with this understanding in mind, you could get some help and some wisdom from people outside the life of the church, people who are not, if you will, walking with Jesus. For example, we need to acknowledge that there are wise people in this world in a variety of fields who may not be walking with Jesus Christ. Here's why. Like you, all humans on this planet are made in the image of God. And so by being made in the image of God, even though they may not yet be, here's church language, they may not yet be redeemed, if you will, nonetheless, they do, every person on the planet has the ability to discover, to explain, and to teach. That's given to us by virtue of being human, by being made in the image of God. And so consequently, there are some wise people out there in particular areas of study. For example, you want to know how to handle your finances better in 2015. What do you do? Pray. God, I need to handle our family's finances this year in a more appropriate way. Help me to understand that. Then what do you do? You look at scripture. What does scripture have to say about giving and generosity and saving and preparing for your, for your family's future? It's all there. And then it's quite appropriate then to say, okay, based on everything that I've taken to God in prayer, everything I've learned from scripture, I'm going to go visit with a financial counselor. That counselor may or may not walk with Christ, but there's some wisdom there. And you go and you say, based on what I know, what would you suggest I do? It's fair enough to do that. That's wise moving forward in wisdom. And then finally, after praying and looking at scripture and perhaps looking at what other people might have to say outside the church, I would then say, above all, or in addition to all, I don't know about the priorities of this after prayer and study of scripture, I would suggest that James gives us a model to use of how to approach these questions that we have in life, and he pushes us, frankly, at the end of the book, to lean into the lives of other Christians, particularly local congregational leaders. And so I want you to flip over to James chapter 5, if you will, please, because in James chapter 5, verse 13, James gives us a model of what to do if we're sick. Okay, so if you're sick, what do you do? You'd pray, and you want some wisdom to know about how to, how to deal with the sickness. It says, pray, look at scripture, maybe get some wise advice from a doctor, somebody who's, God's put that wisdom within them. But in addition to that, James says, uh, here's the way in which you go about praying for relief from an illness or healing from an illness. And he says, you should do it without wavering in doubt. And then, in, well, just read with me. James chapter 5, verse 13, what does he say? Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. It all comes back to our communication with the Lord. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them. And then this very strange sentence, anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And then he goes on to say, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. And the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And uh, this is apparently, according to James, what you're supposed to do in light of an illness. He says, approach an elder, approach the leader of a local congregation, get prayer going. And then he says, get anointed with oil. And some of you are going, what? 
What on earth is that? I mean, if you've been in church, you know, for a lot of years, maybe this isn't a big deal to you, but think about how that sounds to an unchurched person today. We have some people in the life of our church who are new to faith or just exploring faith, and you, you legitimately hear, okay, I'm sick, I get that, I get going and asking someone to pray with me, get anointed with oil, what's that look like? Well, let me tell you, in Scripture, in the ancient world, when someone was about to be honored or set apart, they were often anointed with oil, not not motor oil. This isn't, you know, WD-40 or anything like that. This is, this is okay, this is uh, basically an olive oil-based liquid that would have perfumes in it. And it appears that sometimes in Scripture, uh, that anointing involved a lot of oil. I mean, like, well, Psalm 133 puts it this way when it talks about the unity of the church. He says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. We go, yeah, it's really good when we all get together. It's a nice thing when we all get together. And you know how sweet it is? It's so sweet. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard onto your collar. Well, how lovely is that? I mean, in our culture, we go, that's nuts. If you want to honor me, don't do that to me. I mean, uh, I, like, I don't mind being honored. I don't mean by, mind being prayed for, but do you really have to pour so much on me that it goes from my head down through my hair and then down through across my cheeks and it's resting and it's all soaked into my collar? Oh, lovely, lovely. No, thank you. No, thank you. Well... We would say that's probably a cultural experience that our culture wouldn't adapt to and we would never do anything like that. Never. Except we do anoint people with Gatorade. <laughs> right? We, a coach has a great season. Well, we do. We pour Gatorade all over him. I mean, look at that guy. I, I don't know that that's so wonderful either when you think about it. I mean, take your eyes away from our culture and, and you don't use our cultural eyes and think about what you're looking at there. Okay, to congratulate you, we're going to pour some sweet, sticky substance all over you and it's going to be so heavy that it's going gonna, it's gonna to literally cover you completely and like the guy in the upper right there wearing those lovely white Nike tennis shoes. Okay, can you imagine what that feels like? It comes down, it goes all the way down through your clothes, runs down your legs and pulls in the heels of your shoe. Will those shoes ever be the same again? Would you really want that to happen to you? I like the guy on the lower right. He's got some nice watch on that wrist. Think about all that sticky Gatorade inside the gears of that watch. Hmm. Oh, the guy on the lower left. He's just disappeared. <laughs> He's gone. Well, thanks for honoring me this way. And I like the, the, that football player. Mm, I'm holding this up. You know, I'm going to get you, coach. <laughs> I got to tell you, oil so thick that it's running over my head, down across my cheeks, into, my, into the collars of my shirt doesn't sound that thrilling. Neither does Gatorade per se. But I need to tell you, we do anoint people with oil here. How do we do it? Well... We have people step forward and when they say, sometimes I've got an illness and I'd like you to pray about this. And we go back to James 5 and say, we're going to anoint you with oil. And I want to do something this morning that's a little bit risky. It's a little bit on the edge, but 
I'm suggesting that we approach this with some maturity this morning. And, and for those who don't know what happens when you get anointed with oil at First Christian, we're going to show you today. So that the, the, um, the if you will, the, the, the mystery of not knowing how it works is kind of removed. And so that you know how this might work in your life. And so, daring moment in the life of our church right now. Is there someone here this morning who would say, I've got an illness or there's somebody in my family who has an illness and um, I, won't, I wouldn't mind having the congregation join me in prayer about that and I'm willing to be, if you will, the guinea pig to, where everybody can see what's going on. Is there anyone here today who'd say, I'm game? Come on forth, Rihanna. And so what we're gonna do Uh, I need some elders and pastors to join me here since we're doing this descriptionally, okay? So, Rihanna, come forward. And I want to thank you for being brave. Okay. All right? And uh, I don't, we don't need all the details this morning, mm-hmm. but what, what are we praying about? Just clearly. Not, I, we don't, we're, not even, we're not even putting a mic on her just so that we're... Okay. Uh, our little boy Ryan had um, his tonsils out last week. He's better, but he's not sleeping through the night. All right, so here's the deal. Their son, twin, had tonsils out last week and it's not going well, bottom line. So we're gonna pray for him and we're gonna anoint her in his stead. Does that follow through? Here's how we do it here at First Christian Church. We have these vials of anointing oil. They're up here on the front pews every week. And if somebody says, I'd like to be prayed for for an illness, this is what we do, okay? It's not motor oil, it's not Gatorade, and it's not gonna run down on your collars, okay? And we go like this. And we, we anoint you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now I've got the elders of the church and leaders of the church praying. Let's pray, would you pray with me? Look, Lord God, you're aware of um, the way in which God, little kids, uh, we're thankful, Lord, that. This day and age, we know what to do when tonsils get, um, when they get inflamed time after time after time. And we've got a great medical community here, Lord, that comes behind us and does tremendous work. But then, Lord, the healing process can be, it can be difficult, it can be long, it can be, some kids just kind of fly through it and then others, Lord, well, it's a deal. So we're praying right now. As we've anointed Rihanna and as we have seen what scripture tells us to do, we're asking in faith, believing that based on the work of Jesus Christ in our lives and in that little guy's life, that healing is gonna come and that this coming week is gonna be significantly better and that really cool things are moving forward. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Amen, bless you. Thank you. Thanks God. That's it. That's it. Does it ring home? Does it sound like a place where you'd say, man, I, I've got an issue where I'd like to pray. So that's what we do in chapter five of James says, if you've got an illness, do this. And I would say we could apply the same approach to the way in which we deal with our need for wisdom. We can work with one another. You don't have to go it alone. You pray, you study, you listen to what maybe others out, outside the church have got to say.
But by all means, bring it to the leadership of the church. Bring those issues. Not that we want to direct your lives or... or, No, but we're willing to pray with you. We're willing to be church and do life together. Because frankly, we've all got some things to learn. Which brings me back to my friend, Billy Bob Colpitts. You remember him? The guy who um, showed up in my office said, hey, did you know Mrs. McGillicuddy's in the hospital down at Tulsa Regional? We drove down there and um, we got out of the car. We walked across the parking lot. Room 543, Wayne. We go in the elevator and I pushed button number five and suddenly I realized what was going on. I had no clue prior to that that there was any expectation on the part of that church or for that matter on the part of the church or the part of scripture that pastors need to be engaged in the lives of people who are sick. It had never occurred to me. That's how green I was. And yet, that man with an Oklahoma name had wisdom from God. He didn't come and point his finger. He just came and said, hey, do you want to go to the hospital with me? He was smart enough to teach, and at that very moment, I was smart enough to learn. Because prior to that, I didn't have a clue. And maybe that describes you this week or this year and some of the decisions you face that are in front of you have no clue. Well, then let's pray. And let's study together. Let's look for people outside the life of the church who might have some wisdom on some of the matters that are secular in nature, if you will. But on the other hand, let's also be people who pray and we do life together. Prayer says that the prayer, pardon me, James says that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So don't go it alone. Pray believing, join with others, and as you join with others, believe that God gives generously, faithfully, and fully. I'd like to pray with you right now. Let's do that. Father in heaven, we got hundreds of people in this room right now, and uh, there are plenty of matters and plenty of decisions that are before individual families or individual households. People of different ages, different stripes, God, have lots of things in front of them. Some that have implications today and have to decide by Monday morning at 10 o'clock. Others, God, are yet months, those decisions are months yet off. And some before us, we don't even know yet. But we're praying, God, that you will give us wisdom and then give us courage to um, work with each other. Not in a top-down way, but in a way of walking and doing life together, Lord. Speak to our hearts, Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm inviting you to stand, friends. And um, let me tell you where we're going for the rest of the worship service. We're going to sing together, and this song together is in many ways um, our, our bridge between where we are right now and the communion. So during this song, those of you serving communion, we'd invite you to go and prepare. And at the end of the song, which instead of me reading scripture today, this song is our way of opening ourselves and being ready to hear from the Spirit of God during communion. Stephanie's going to lead us in prayer, and then you may be seated, and we'll move into communion. During communion, if you say, hey, pastor, this business of wisdom or this business of illness that we've looked at today, I need to deal with it. And you've already had prayer time. Can I get prayer? Yeah. Even in the midst of this People are going to be seated and you may have to squeeze out through the pews, whatever, or come down on the balcony. Just come and grab one of our hands. And we'd like to pray with you. I know we've already had prayer once. There's nothing wrong in praying again, right? 
And uh, let's God have God work in our lives together. Let's start by worshiping him together.